Hello, everyone. Once again, we're here for another version of the Higher Learning Podcast here at Politicking Radio, Polit Studios in Riverside. For artists, interviews, content creators, be sure to like, subscribe, follow our YouTube channel, Politicking Broadcasting. Go ahead and follow our blog, thepoliticinform.com, and also us on Politicking Radio, where you can catch all of our podcasts on Politic audio platforms. Google, Spotify, everything. We're here today with a special guest, man, my guy, Dr. Robert Carpenter. How you doing, brother? Good, good, brother. How are you? I'm great, man. I'm great. Thank you for asking, man. It's a nice day today, man. It is. It is a nice day to be alive. It's a good day, to, a good year. We're going to have a fantastic new year. I know a lot of people are coming out of a bad 2021, a bad 2020, but we have to keep our minds on the bright side and just keep pushing forward and sort of stay. We got to seize opportunities that are there in front of us. So I'm just excited to be here and excited to sort of point the direction forward for, for a great year. Absolutely, man. Absolutely, man. So let's take it back, man. Take it back to, I want to share something with you, the, you know, Pomona High days, man. And yeah. I was, had a pleasure sharing a class with you, man, drama class. And, uh, you know, that was my 11th grade year. I believe you were a freshman. And I was coming off a pretty rough summer, man. I just just lost my mother that summer, so I wasn't mm. in my right mind. You know, mm. I appeared to just be checked out. But one thing I noticed, uh, we had Mr. Sanders, if you remember Mr. Sanders, and, um, you know, we had a we had to do a, this pantomime called the Jabberwocky. i never forget it. And I, I saw your performance on it, and I saw the way you nailed it. And I was like, man, this dude is serious. Like, he's serious, and it's funny. I see you doing what you do. Talk about how that. You know, uh, you know, going through high school in, in, a, in not a, a not so good area and able to focus and keep your composure to achieve and everything. And if I if I remember correctly, you were valedictorian, right? Yes, yeah, so I was valedictorian in my year. I did skip ahead. So I was number two in my class because I Ooh. skipped ahead to, next to my sister, who was number one. So, yeah, it was. Yeah. So some technicalities there. But thank you. I appreciate it. And now that class was absolutely phenomenal, Mr. Sanders, and learned a lot from him, learned a lot from you and from the experience there. And it was just an outlet. I think the arts and, and, and drama and all of those sorts of things let us be creative. And there's so few creative avenues at P High, and, and, and that was one of them. And I think we both really cherish that. Right, right. There we go. So being at Pomona High, Going through that and uh, being able to come out, we're seeing you. Excuse me, let me turn this one off. Okay, we're seeing you doing what you're doing, man. Uh, talk about how the transition from going to college, mm -hmm. you know, speaking and lecturing mm -hmm. at uh, Howard and Oxford universities, mm -hmm. how that prepared you to going forward to writing your first books and being in your first set of film. Oh, yeah, that's a fantastic question. So I sort of am an opportunist in the sense of trying to take advantage of opportunities that present themselves, or at least trying to carve out opportunities. And I think what's interesting is Pomona High kind of gave me a resilience because there weren't a lot of opportunities that were there, so you had to fight for them. And so I think some people might look at that as a disadvantage in terms of having to fight for opportunities if they don't exist. And what I found is once you're able to fight for them and get them, when you went to other environments, for example, college or beyond that, that same fighting spirit allowed you to break through a little bit more fast or allowed you to accelerate. And so it was that mindset of resilience and fight and spiritedness that I think I was able to cultivate at the high school level and then sort of take through from there. And what's interesting is I, I think that a lot of the habits that I developed there because I took 
quite a few classes, was in all the sports, was in all the art programs and, and otherwise. And I think when you're able to develop discipline and then habits from that discipline, it kind of takes you over. So, you know, you have to, for example, it takes 21 to 30 days to develop a new habit. And so you have to discipline yourself for 21 to 30 days, for example, if you're going to lose weight or get in shape, or if you want to learn something new, do something new, get up at a new time, you have to discipline yourself for a short period of time until it becomes a habit. And so for me, I was able to kind of discipline my mind quite a bit to read so much per day, to write so much per day, to sort of force myself to do things that didn't necessarily come naturally to me. And so a lot of those habits, I was just able to take through the various seasons of life that, that I had. And so, I, you know, definitely up and down with different things, but I've been blessed to, to have kind of become an author, to become a writer and a director in Hollywood, to have worked on over 50 movie and television series in various roles before I got my first directing gig and now having multiple series that we're pitching around in Hollywood and, and working on Academy Award winners with Emmy Award winners with folks sort of along those lines. And I've just been really blessed again. I think those same things we learned in, in Pomona High School serve me well now. And again, I'm not just saying that I really do think that because what I found, Ronnie, is that there are a lot of people who didn't come from our background, who maybe came from backgrounds where everything was handed to them. And those people don't have the kind of resilience once you get into some of these spaces. So I see things, for example, as a director, and it's rare to have a young black director in, in the directing role. And, yeah. and what's interesting is stuff that bothers, say, people who didn't come from our type of background, that irritates them, frustrates them if they're a director, doesn't frustrate me or irritate me. It's sort of like water off my back. I'll give you an example. It's kind of a film example, but I was filming one day. It was a Saturday, one of my last movies, and the sound guy didn't show up but the sound <clears throat> and and so we were like where is this guy and and so i remember we called him and he said that he was in australia when we were shooting in la and we're like, wait <laughs> wow you just confirmed last night that you're in la and so long story short i looked over at my what my first assistant director who i'd hired from the voice who was a production manager for the voice show and i saw his face turn blood red he was furious. He said, put him on the phone, put him on the phone. And I looked at him and he said, I'm not putting him on the phone. He said, put him on the phone. I said, I know you want to yell at him and get angry at him, but the reality is you yelling and getting angry at him is not going to solve the fact that he's not here and we have no sound for the production. Right. And while all of this is going on, Ronnie, the location rental manager, the people we rented that particular facility from, this a young kid, he's watching this go on. He came over to us about 15 minutes after this is going down. He said, well, I'm a sound guy and I've got equipment in my car. I can do this broadcast for you. And we were like, and so what I took from that is that you can be, you know, I was able to stay calm because I've been through so much worse. I know we've been through so much worse than a sound guy not showing up for a shoot on a Saturday morning. And so I know that's a small example, but there are so many other examples where you're able to take that resiliency and that grit from not the greatest sort of most privileged background and leverage it for greater things. Facts, facts, man. I love that. I love that, man. I want to go back to you becoming a professor, man. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that was your, your first, you know, job in your career, if I could say the right words. Um, talk about why you chose to become a professor. You know, what made you go on that path? Oh, sorry, Ryan. I could have sort of lost hearing there. That's okay. Uh, talk about how you how you became a professor. What made you choose the path of becoming a professor? Ooh. That's interesting. So for 
my 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 very first jobs is I started a startup, and the startup was the first to commercialize Facebook at the time. This was I don't know 2008 2009, and so long story short, fast forward three years, I sold the startup. But during the three years, I would always have maybe annual lunches with the president of a local university, Cal State LA. And we would just catch up. There's no particular agenda, just saying hello. And I've gotten connected to him. And I remember I sold the startup and the president put me in touch with the dean of the business school. And the dean invited me out to lunch and we had several lunches. And he said, well, we're looking for somebody to teach at the business school. And so, well, I'm interested in that. And Basically, they opened up an opportunity. They gave me a corner office on the seventh floor of Simpson Tower at Cal State LA in the business school. And that was really such a rewarding experience, Ronnie, because I was very close in age to the students. I think I was 26 or 27. And so I was able to identify with them. And I remember thinking about how did I best learn? So I wanted to in integrate those learning techniques and approaches for my students as well. And so I was there for a couple of years and it was really a, a, a very edifying experience, particularly with the students. I think what was interesting is I learned that I didn't necessarily want to be a professor in an institutional context. And so I'm very entrepreneurial. I'm very much like you, you know, that PI entrepreneurialism. Yes, and so right. I there are opportunities with that at the same time. For me, I didn't feel like I was able to do as much as I wanted to do in terms of ironically launching ideas or doing business ventures and that sort of thing. The university wasn't really sort of for that. And so I jumped back out on my own and as I mentored into entertainment eventually. And so, but it was, it was a fantastic experience. And for anybody who wants to be a professor, I highly recommend it. It's the greatest part-time work you can ever have, to be honest. I mean, professors work, oh goodness, six months out of the year, once or twice a week. I mean, it's a very, very good job in, in that regard. And oftentimes you're able to lecture on the subject you love the most or subjects you love the most. And so, and obviously it's been difficult with COVID recently because so many different professors were, you know, having to record their broadcasts online and not be in class with their students, but still it's, it's a great gig. And, you know, I, interestingly enough, I found out when I was a professor, most professors aren't actually what we think of as those long-term professors. Like, you know, those professors you have that have been there for 50 years, most yeah. are actually the opposite. Most are junk professors. And so they're coming in, they're working full time and they're teaching a couple of times at night a week because they're subject matter experts, but they don't necessarily have a PhD or a master's or advanced credentials for it. And so that was interesting to, to learn as well. But yeah, it was a very gratifying experience. I miss my students still. It was a, a fun time there. I definitely learned a lot. And, and, but it, you know, at the same time, like you, I'm very much always looking forward. So. I spend time reflecting on the past in terms of what lessons I can learn from them. And then I just move forward and don't give it a second thought. Nice. Nice. You know what, that, that just taught me something right mm -hmm. there. Uh, you know, go ahead and always look forward, take the lessons, like you said, and uh, let the lessons shape you and, and prepare you for the next journey. So I like the way that you said that. Oh, uh, I'm going to give you some props and man for the, your first book, 48 laws <laughs> of happiness. Uh, Let's talk about your first book, man. Oh, a New York media critic you know, na uh, named Kirkus said it was profoundly em em empathetic. So uh, talk about how that made you feel, uh, the success of being a, a first-time writer. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Wow. That is a great question. I, you know, I, it, it was just overwhelming in a good way. I felt gratified and more gratified that people were able to receive it because I wrote the book in hopes that it would actually empower people 
to be happy in their minds and their emotions and their relationships with in their business or finances and really every area of life. And because I remember I would read books on happiness or on self-esteem and I would look back and I, and I'd see the greatest challenges the authors had. And a lot of them were pretty small and like, Oh, Hey, I, you know, I stubbed my toe on a Lego. And I remember thinking, man, I've been run over by a car. I've been mugged. I've been shot. I've been all these different things. And so I'm still happy after right. all of those things. And most people are like, well, you've been through all of those things. And I was like, yes, I have. And I may not look at or speak of it, but I think ironically, those things gave me a resilience and gave me kind of a lot of lessons because I went through the dark night of the soul. I went through those painful, terrible experiences that so many people now are facing, especially in the crisis of COVID and, and, and financial crises and other things. And so I think that that sort of prompted me to write the book and I think gave me a lot of the lessons in the book that I related and a lot of the stories that I related. And, and so it was just very gratifying. There are, you know, one story in particular kind of kind of breaks my heart is one of the, one of my friends from school, you know, he was a little bit ill. I didn't realize how ill and he requested my book and uh, an autographed copy. So I sent it to him about a week later, he passed away. Um, but just knowing that he literally said, cause he was in hospice care. He said, this is the last thing I want to read in my life. And I was just so moved by that and, and stunned really, and just seeing those type of stories come from all over the world with the book has been really gratifying. And I've got other books that are coming out very, very soon. Uh, uh, at least two this year are coming out. So super excited about that. But that book is is really near and dear to my heart, especially as a first one. It's long. I'm very long-winded, as you can tell in my responses. I love it. I love it. I love forward, it. And, forward and 50 pages nearly. and But that's just of love and of trying to show people a roadmap because in happiness, a lot of people say, well, it's, it's a choice you make, but they never tell you what kind of choice or the steps to get to happiness. So I'm like, can I provide a specific roadmap, a step-by-step for how to get from your current level of happiness to the next level, a higher level in the spectrum. And so that's sort of what, what the book does. And, and it's been really great to see. I've been able to speak on it in various places. Lots of requests have been made. We're actually going to be launching a, a school of happiness that's Ooh. based on that. And so first virtual, and then we'll see where it goes from that, but really to enable people to be happy because man, we have the highest depression rates yes. at any time in history, the highest suicide rates, the highest cutting rates, the highest alcoholism rates. And that was pre COVID. Right. And, right. and so we need some, some guidance in this regard and schools don't teach us how to do this. The workplace doesn't teach us how to do this. Yes. A lot of times families don't teach us how to do this because unfortunately people are so busy and they've never mastered themselves. And so, you know, so yeah, it's been very, very gratifying launching that first book and seeing the reception from so many different people. And, you know, I'm just ready to, to, to keep moving forward though. And, you know, with, with new projects. Definitely, man, you represent the town well, man. Like seriously, when every time I, I see something that you're doing, whether it's uh, writing a book or, you know, seeing you up there with the, I believe the Wayans crew, right? Uh, you were doing some work, uh, doing some work with them. Talk about being a director, yeah. and a creator in, I guess, Hollywood. You know, yeah. how, how was that in the beginning and trying to get your foot in the door and also mm. some of the, the struggles that you face along the way that led you to the success you had early on? Yeah, absolutely. That's a fantastic question. So I remember, Ronnie, not knowing anybody in the <laughs> industry, literally not a single person. I didn't know 
you know, left from right. I didn't know anything about the technical aspects of directing. I didn't know anything about producing. I didn't know anything about writing. I mean, I knew how to write, but I didn't know how do you write a script? Right, so right. Software is or not software? How do you pitch a studio? How do you not pitch a studio? And and so I was coming in totally a rookie for these things. And I remember doing some Google research and I was like, how do I get myself on set? So I remember it said, become a production assistant, which is the very low totem pole person on a set. And so I remember in all my, cause I, I'm, I have a lot of ambition, a lot of gusto. So I don't mind putting myself out there even if people say no. So I remember there was this big series called Divergent in the 2010s. And so I remember I messaged the daughter of the producers and I said, hey, I'd like to be a production assistant on this set. And they said, who are you? And you have no experience. So I went even lower. And so I, I, what I decided to do as a matter of strategy was I said, well, I'm going to learn the business and the operations of entertainment, but I'm going to do it on student sets. So what I did was I said, every weekend, I'm going to be a PA, production assistant, for 18-year-olds. And so I humbled myself and I went back to work for 18 year olds who didn't pay me any money. I had to pick up their coffee. I had to take out their trash. I had to move their stuff around. But while this was going on, I was learning about shot angles. I was learning about how to interact with actors. I was learning about the physical mechanics and machinery of sets. And so I probably did that a dozen times or so. And I said, I think I've gotten... Oh, and this again, just on the weekends because I had, had other things during the week, but I learned sort of intuitively the feel of it. So I said, well, I want to start applying for paid PA roles. And so I was able to do that. I got some stuff, Disney and that sort of thing. And eventually it just kind of crescended up very quickly. Like you said, I was on a show with Damon Wayans, The Lethal Weapon, where I played a detective for a couple of seasons. And But in terms of the, the directing, the behind the scenes stuff, I think it was about two to two and a half years from the start of my PAing to getting my first big directing job. And so it just moved pretty rapidly. And, but I was just able to leverage learning everything that I could like a sponge about it. And so one of the things I would relate to our listeners or your listeners is I'm trying to co-op your show. <laughs> I have your I've, I've been broadcasting today. Relate to, relate to listeners is that you got to be humble if you're going to go into something new, humble and hungry. And, even if you have to learn from somebody who is half your age about something and, and just take everything in and people will give you a shot if you work hard and if you're interested and you're engaging and you don't put up difficulties. And so, yeah, so it was about two, two and a half years and, Oh goodness, I probably was on 50 sets before I got my first directing gig. And so I just was, and it's fun. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. It can be exhausting and nothing though can compare you can prepare you for that first directing job though, because it is the last great dictator job in the earth because <laughs> what you say goes, but it's interesting because there's a, a lot of decision-making. You know, I was CEO of a startup, a lot of decisions were made with that. And I was professor, some decisions were made with that. I was transportation commissioner for LA that, you know, decisions were made, but in the directing role, it's hundreds of decisions a day that you're having to make. You're making decisions on who to hire, on who to fire, you're making decisions on, what you know scenes you want to film first or second or third on the interpretation of the actors you're making decisions on costumes on lighting on props and on set and you're making financial decisions with producers and there are folks you know the financiers and so everyone's constantly 
asking for your attention and wanting a decision, wanting an answer. And so it's exhilarating and exhausting and it's just addicting as well. And so <laughs> it's been a lot of fun and, you know, working on these new series now. So obviously the industry shut down because of COVID. And so that shifted kind of my approach a little bit because there was no filming going on for a while, but it's been, it's been a lot of fun to, to direct. I think probably my most fun job. It, well, no, second most fun. Well, probably co-equal to I was NCAA announcer in college. So that was fun. That was fun. <laughs> that got to be fun. Yeah. Yes, man. So um, talk. you talked about the grind and what it takes to become, to get where you got for other people. You know, you work with Damon Wayans, man. The Wayans brothers is, is one of my favorite uh, families in entertainment because, you know, they started out within the Olympic color and they really put a lot of people on, you know, Jim Carrey and Jennifer Lopez and different different people. And you look across the board and their family, everyone's doing well as far as in their career. So can you talk about some of the little lessons that you learned or some things that you may have picked up that's going to help you going forward? Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny because with Damon, I remember he was the very first celebrity I ever met when I was a kid. I was probably, I don't know, seven or eight. And my parents were driving out in L.A. and just randomly and we were driving somewhere, I think in Brentwood, and he was out by his gate and he said, wait a second, that's Damon Wayans. And I remember I waved at him and he waved back at me. I said, wow, you know, because that was his, you know, when he did Major Pain, this was coming right. out from Living Color. I mean, right. with the Wayans, especially in the 90s. Right. Even right. still today, but especially then. And so I was just like, wow. And then I remember I actually relayed that story to him on set one day. I said, you were the very first celebrity of that I ever met and said hi to, and you said hi back. And I'll never forget that. And I just remember, though, just seeing how much of a professional he was. It's interesting because he always nailed his lines on the first take. Wow. You never saw him mess up his lines. So he was always, I don't want to say prepared, because he would always read his lines and memorize them right before he went in. So he didn't do a lot of work at home he just kind of he's in television so folks know it's very much a grind and so you're filming five days a week and so he's having to learn new lines every single day right. and so he would read his lines beforehand and then he'd come on set and he'd execute them every time and i remember sometimes the director would want what's called a safety shot and basically meaning you nailed the shot already but let's just do a backup one in case we did anything wrong in case there's something wrong with the tech. I remember Damon being frustrated. It's like, hey, no, I got this. We don't have to do any more. So that was his mentality. He had the mentality of not only an expert and a pro, but he had confidence that he knew that every time he was going to nail it. Wow. And I think that confidence it was interesting because a lot of times people, especially on sets, they come in and they're very afraid of lights and they're very afraid of directors yelling action and they're 200 people looking at you while you're performing, not just the cameras or the director. And he was always very self-assured. And so that was definitely something that I learned from him is to always be self-assured and to go with a choice and commit to it and not to second guess yourself. You didn't, you never saw Damon sort of second guessing himself at all. Wow. It was, I'm going to do this. And if it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, it's wrong, but I'm going to do it. And most of the time it worked. And so that was a lot of fun. It was actually the second highest rated show on Fox for for some time. So I was I was very, very excited about that. And yeah, just sort of being in that presence. We shot at Warner Brothers. And so that was, I think we had two sound stages there. 
and Soundstage 30, which was a lot of fun. I remember when people would go by and like the tourists and the little tram cars, I remember I would wave at people in my little uniform and they're like, who is that? Let's take a picture of him. And, and it's like, it's not Damon Wayans. It's not anybody, you know, right now, but it was definitely a lot of fun. That's, that's awesome, man. So man, you, you've done a lot, achieved a lot so far. I know you got so much more to do. You know what I mean? Um, can you, if you can tell, 18-year-old Robert Carpenter before, Ooh. you know, college, you know, mm -hmm. the Victorian, right before, if you mm -hmm. can tell yourself anything different that mm -hmm. would help you or, or mm -hmm. prevent some of the things that you went through, what would that be? Ooh, that's a great question. I think the answer would probably be listen more to those who've done it before you. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes when you have ambition, when you have smarts, when you have hustle, that you're going to plow forward regardless of whatever possible negative side effects will be in terms of your pushing forward. And so I would just tell my younger self to be a little bit more cautious when it comes to the decisions that I make, when it comes to the people that I trust in particular, you know, your life can hinge on who you believe, on who you trust. And so I think there are some people that I, I shouldn't have trusted because not everybody who says, I wanna be your friend or I wanna help you actually wants to be your friend or actually wants to help you. So I would say be not not skeptical of people, but be more cautious, trust, but verify. So I would say just listen more. I would say, I think probably the other thing too is slow your life down to the pace of enjoyment. And I'll say that again, slow your life down to the pace of enjoyment. I think a lot of times in the grind and the hustle, people are going through the motion saying, well, I'm going to be happy or enjoy my life once I reach this goal or once I reach that goal or once I get to this pinnacle. And the reality is when you reach that next goal, and I've achieved lots of goals, I know you have too, Ronnie, the feeling of success and achievement is temporary. Yes. Sometimes it goes away in three months or a year. Sometimes it goes away in a few minutes. A lot of yeah. times it goes away in a few days. And so then you set your mind on that next goal. But in the meantime, as you're trying to reach the goal or the goals, you're not happy or you're not as happy as you could be. You're not as fulfilled. And so I would say only do things that you know or believe are going to fulfill you in this season. Now, again, I know sometimes there's, you know, you've got a no pain, no gain. I understand sometimes you have to discipline yourself and you have to push through unfortunate or negative seasons. But at the same time, that doesn't have to be all of your life. You right. shouldn't constantly be in a grinding season this season the next season the next season and never enjoying yourself sometimes there are seasons where you grind sometimes there are seasons where you rest and right. if it's not kind of this back and forth balance your life is out of balance and it's easy for one to sort of get exhausted or burnt out and so i would say slow your life down just a little bit you can have less achievements but at least you can enjoy yourself more so that's probably what i would say to my my younger self <laughs> Dang, I love that answer, man. One of my favorite uh, basketball coaches, Phil Jackson, had something that he used to say to, to Kobe and Shaq to and just stay in the moment, enjoying the moment. Mm -hmm. so I kind of knew I, it kind of relates to what you just said. So I love it, man. You know, I, well, we're out of time. I want to respect your time, my brother. So I, I thank you for coming by, man. It was a pleasure having our own P-Towns, Robert <laughs> Carpenter, man, Dr. Robert mm -hmm. Carpenter, man, coming from Pomona, man. So happy to be able to share a, a high school, share a class, share a city with you, man. I salute you for everything you're doing and look forward to everything that's to come. I know you have a second book coming out, two books coming out and 
more film projects coming on, man. I, I wish you the best on those, and I'll be watching, man. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it, and, and best of luck as well, and, and happy New Year. Yes, happy New Year to, year to you too, man. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and who will tune in to the Higher Learning Podcast with this edition, special edition on a Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm sorry, Thursday in Riverside mm -hmm. Studios. My days are off today. We're usually filming on Tuesdays, but I thank you guys. I want you guys to go ahead and like, subscribe, and follow Politic and Broadcasting on YouTube, and also follow our blog, thepoliticinform.com, and also follow us on Politic and Radio. You can listen to all of our podcasts on all audio podcast platforms. Dr. Robert, man, thank you, my brother. I appreciate, <laughs> thank you, you. Thank you. Bye, appreciate man. you. Much love, thank man. You.